Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Both my guests tonight are in their 80s, with unique insights and wisdom to share on events in this momentous week. But I want to start with a couple of spry young 70-year-olds, one who departed the White House on Wednesday morning after a flurry of presidential pardons and judicial executions, and another who arrived with the promise of unity. President Joe Biden's inauguration, which included a performance of Patrick Cassidy's piece Proclamation by Patricia Tracy, a violinist from his ancestors' home place in County Louth, was preceded by a mass in the Church of St. Matthew the Apostle, attended not only by the Bidens and by Kamala Harris and her husband, but by leading Republicans and fellow Irish-American Catholics Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. A hint and a gesture, perhaps, of healing for a badly fractured nation. Joe Biden later did his best to cement that sacred hope with a quotation from St. Augustine. Many centuries ago, St. Augustine, a saint of my church, wrote that a people was a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. Defined by the common objects of their love. What are the common objects we as Americans love that define us as Americans? I think we know. Opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and yes, the truth. In the last weeks of his presidency, Joe Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, and his Attorney General, William Barr, approved the execution of a record 17 people on death row, including, just in the last week, Lisa Montgomery and Dustin Higgins. By contrast, Joe Biden is the first US president to express opposition to the death penalty in all circumstances, which has made him a natural ally of my first guest, Sister Helen Prejean. A member of the Roman Catholic Congregation of St. Joseph in New Orleans, she has for decades been a leading American advocate for the abolition of the death penalty. Her work gained international attention after the 1995 film Dead Man Walking, which earned Susan Sarandon an Oscar for her portrayal of Sister Helen as a nun torn between comforting a convicted killer on death row and empathising with his victims' families. Mr. Percy, I've never done this before. I'm, I'm trying. I'm just trying to follow the example of Jesus, who said that every person is worth more than their worst act. Well, Sister Helen herself joined me by Zoom from her home in New Orleans last Tuesday, just 24 hours before the inauguration of President Biden. And I began by asking her about the observation that many supporters of the death penalty in the United States also define themselves as firmly pro-life. I'm not sure they would endorse life is valuable. Some life is valuable. The life of the unborn is valuable. The innocent lives are valuable. And that's the heart of the dialogue I had with the Catholic Church, with Pope John Paul II. And I'd, in a letter, I just said to him, when I'm walking with a man to execution, and I have to ask you, does the Catholic Church only support the dignity of innocent life? Will you help our church understand that all life has dignity, even the guilty? Now, that dialogue with him through a letter happened in '97. It was around the, a man in Virginia, Joseph Odell, who was innocent, and Italy had really picked up his case. The 
Human Rights Commission of the Italian Parliament. Pope heard about it. That's why I'm sure my letter went right to him. See, and he had written, and the Catholic Church, it's long tradition. This was a 1,500-year dialogue to finally reach the point of August 2nd, 2018, when Pope Francis finally did change the catechism. Under no conditions can we ever allow state government the power. And so the church had always upheld, and interestingly, for the defense of society. It was never about this thing of some crimes by their very nature are so bad that we need to do to them what they did to their victim. It was always for the defense of society, and it was before they had prisons, Augustine in the 5th century, Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century. But in his encyclical, which came out in 95, Pope John Paul in the Gospel of Life had, had pushed the death penalty to the edge. I thought, sure, they were going to do it. I knew we had to reach a position like the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, like Amnesty International, under no conditions can you give governments the right to take the life of their citizens, because they'll always claim there's certain crimes. And I knew we needed that unconditional, you know, that you could never take life, unequivocal. And in Evangelium Vitae, Pope John Paul had said, but in cases of absolute necessity, the state can execute. And when I told him this in a letter, and I said, when I read that, my heart plummeted because I knew your words were going to be quoted for death by district attorneys, which happened right after that in New Orleans, where Harry Connick Sr., district attorney, held up the Pope's encyclical and said, Every death penalty we get here is an absolute necessity. I said, we need to change so that unconditionally, where we could just recognize, wait, this is always going to be wrong. And then the church teaching changes on the books. You touched on in your book, Dead Man Walking, and, and later in the film too, the role of victim satisfaction. It's often put forward as an argument that victims are looking for satisfaction in the death penalty. Or they use the word closure, closure. We're going to help and we're going to get you justice. I've been present at death penalty trials where the prosecutor in his summary closing argument says to the jury, look at that family there. They're never going to see their daughter graduate. They're never going to see their grandchildren. Do justice for that family. And what that means is in order to really honor the death of their loved one, what you do is you're doing it for them. Give them death. Give them the death sentence. And that's their trying to sanctify what they're doing, that they're doing it for the victims. I have had experience with victims' families all over this country where they wait sometimes 15 or 20 years. And, and you know, you have to bring the people there to understand this. Granted, they start. And who wouldn't in a place of outrage, trauma, get them, I want to kill them with my bare hands. But it's about us as a government. And really think of it, you wait 15 years, then you get to sit on the front row and you got to, and you get to watch as the state kills the one, killed your loved one, and you witness that violence and that's supposed to heal you. I just found out in these federal executions, they're giving us, the victim's families are giving us script to read after the execution, thanking the government for getting justice for them. And they feel closure. They read a bloody script. I just found that out. Incredible. Your own story is told in River of Fire. 
and it talks about your spiritual journey. Can you share a little bit of that with us from from, you know, finding yourself joining a convent to where you are right now today on the the eve of presidential inauguration and what you've achieved? We, we always we have achieved. This is the first time we had a presidential candidate, by the way. In fact, all the Democratic candidates, they came out against the death penalty who are for the abolition. Obama didn't do that. Obama still had his little designer death penalty. In this case, he wanted to hold open that. Uh, so it is really a moment because the dialogue has been so present in, in the people. And so I've seen these changes. So River of Fire, you're talking about leap of faith. I mean, river of fire. Oh, my Lord, what a leap. Because, but it was gradual. It's very integral, little leap, the way faith works. It blooms like a flower, more than a great big old 4th of July uh, comet going off. That it wasn't just about praying for people, asking God to take care of all the poor and suffering people of the world. It wasn't just about practicing charity to the people around you. It was about justice. And justice meant recognizing my own privilege and then rolling up my sleeves and getting in there and being involved. Because that before it was a private, passive religion. I'd say things like, well, I'm a nun. I'm spiritual. I'm above politics. I'm apolitical. And if we say we're apolitical, that's a very political stance to take because it means you support the status quo. You may not be lifting a finger, but if you support the status quo, that's very political. So, boy, she got me on both things, Jesus and the political thing. And then I made the move. And it's really important, I think, when you wake up, it doesn't matter how late you wake up. I was in my 40s before I got about Jesus and justice. It's what we do after we wake up. And what I did was move out of my comfortable suburban all-white surroundings into African-American people who became my neighbors and my teachers. And I had to learn everything. It was like another country, the way the police treated people, what happened when you didn't have health care. I was learning everything. And that's then when I got the invitation to write a man on death row. And I wrote the letter and it changed my life. What do you pray about? Oh, I've been praying for these 13 human beings that have been killed by Trump and Barr, for Lisa Montgomery, who was tortured and raped and abused and trafficked and had mental problems, struggles, and her death. I pray for the people in prison. I pray for Manuel Ortiz, a man on death row in Louisiana that I've been accompanying as his spiritual advisor for 20 years now. I take one person at a time. He's my seventh person on death row. He's innocent. He's the third one out of seven people. That's how broken it is. I pray for them, but I pray also, I'm praying a lot for our political leaders. I'm praying a lot for Biden and for the new administrative team coming in. I've even had some prayers for Trump. Sister Helen, you'll be aware that, you know, as you and I are talking about man's inhumanity to man, that we here in Ireland are also experiencing the the aftershock of the mother and baby home a commission oh, yeah. report. It's unspeakable. It's unspeakable. But you know what I think it's tied to? You don't recognize their dignity as human beings, the inviolable dignity of life. 
And finally, when the church did come to a position against the death penalty, the inviolable dignity of all life, the women were so disrespected. And there was so much made, that, like sex was the worst of the worst. To have a baby out of wedlock was the worst of the worst. So these women didn't deserve to keep their babies. These women deserved only to be punished. It's not recognizing their inviolable dignity as human beings. And that's tied into sexism in the church. It is tied to patriarchy forever, that women are not held in deep respect. And it led to that as one of the aberrations when you don't respect the inviolable dignity of women. If you could go back to 1957, any advice you'd give that that young woman who was heading into St. Joseph's? Well, I, back in 1957, left my family home, cried all the way to the novitiate, sitting between my mom and daddy in the back of the station wagon, leaving Baton Rouge, my family home, to go to the convent, to the novitiate in New Orleans, crying all the way, saying the rosary and crying all the way. And I remember we got to an overpass and I could see the mother house, I could see the novitiate. Wiped away those tears and stepped through the door and I wanted to be a saint and I wanted to be a mystic. I wanted the spiritual life. Didn't have any concept of justice. Justice was gonna come later. But I wanted to know how to pray and I wanted to be close to God. And that has stayed with me always in it. And so that was before Vatican II. I was dressing in medieval garb and never changed my dress. I would have blind obedience to my superiors who would tell me God's will for me. Uh, I would study what they said to study. I would do what they said to do as God's will. So my intellect lay dormant during that time. My initiative and leadership lay dormant for that time. But for me to go fallow for those years, it didn't hurt me. And you develop this habit of silence. You you develop a habit of now we're at prayer. And what, what saved me, because so much of it was just not fully human, but you have those that full hour of silence and meditation, free meditation, where it wasn't saying rosary after rosary or litany after litany, your mind could be free in meditation. And it was all around aligning my life with Christ. I think that saved me through those years. And then of course, Vatican II, kaboom, I entered in 57. And by 62, we have this little rotund guy, he was supposed to be an interim guy, John the 23rd elected Pope. The curie in Rome thought, well, he'll be gone in a couple of years. Besides, he smokes and everything. Well, within the first couple of months, he said the Holy Spirit told him that we needed a worldwide council aimed not at condemning heretics, but at reform within the church itself to be able to relate to the sufferings and joys of the modern world. And kaboom, next thing you know, we were out of the habit and we were relating to the world. And I began to develop my mind, my intellect, and began to engage in life. Are there new vocations to come? In different ways, I believe. I don't believe we're ever going to have that you're going to have young people like myself going into a life where you're going to make a permanent vow of celibacy. People need to experience life. And so it's going to be older people, much fewer numbers, 
But I believe there will always be a group of people who want to give their lives over in this way to devote to prayer, the spiritual life, and in with the support of the sisterhood or brotherhood to be able to do work in the world for the poor and people meant to serve. The sisterhood has been invaluable to me. It still is. I never would have grown in my understanding of that the gospel is about justice without the community. I had a reputation in the community. It was, there goes Helen again with one of her half-baked plans of winning the youth of the world to Christ with her feet firmly planted in midair. And so they were with me during my, they helped me mature. And, uh, and so I love them. And, and anybody who wants, I just believe there will always be a group, a small group of people who will choose not to marry, choose to devote their life to prayer and the spiritual life and the service of our neighbor, especially those the most vulnerable, or as Pope Francis says, to be the field hospital out where the wounded are. Sister Helen Brejean, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. It's quite a leap. Next Wednesday, the 27th of January, is the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and its designated International Holocaust Memorial Day, commemorating not only the six million Jewish victims of the Nazi Holocaust, but all victims of genocide. This year, COVID has forced the cancellation of many of the physical commemorative events. But one of Ireland's last remaining Holocaust survivors has been invited to address the European Commission by a remote link for an hour at three o'clock on Monday. The only survivor asked to do so. Born in Czechoslovakia in 1935, Tommy Reichenthal was just nine when he was taken with his mother and brother to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1944. When he was finally liberated in 1945, he discovered that 30 members of his family had been killed by the Nazis. He moved to Ireland in 1959, but didn't speak of his experiences until the 1990s. Now, though, he's made it his life's mission to share his story with school children and students and at various events here and overseas. He's also authored a best-selling memoir, and three acclaimed documentaries about the legacy of the Holocaust. I spoke with Tommy last night, before the Jewish Sabbath, and asked him about the possibility of history ever repeating itself. Well, that, that's right. For me, the fact that I am privileged uh, speaking and I'm invited to various uh, events and, of course, schools, and I want to keep the Holocaust uh, alive as long as possible because there are fewer and fewer on us of us and soon Holocaust will fall into the history. And of course I'm encouraging uh, uh, young people not to forget it because the history is about to take note what happened so it doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, the record is not very good. I don't need to remind anybody that only a few days ago we saw example, an event like happened in the United States uh, took uh, minutes and uh, the end of it, <laughs> thankfully it ended all right, but uh, uh, the intention was, uh, as far as I could see from the media, the intention was really serious. 
you talk with school children and share your story with them and you talk about the importance of not being a bystander. Well, I experienced in uh, my country of origin, Slovakia, uh, where the Slovak people were good people. We lived in, in, in society there, in the village, and uh, uh, we were very much respected. Uh, people liked us. If they needed any uh, advice or anything, they always come to the Reichenthals and whether they wanted a good doctor or a lawyer, they would ask to, who to go to, you know. Suddenly, uh, when the uh, Nazism uh, came in 1939, from the beginning, it wasn't that we thought, I don't know what will happen, it will be something uh, that will go away. The people were bystanders. The, the news, the propaganda, the... the come through the churches because uh, uh, Slovakia was a very uh, religious country like we had in Ireland, Roman Catholic country. They were fed uh, all these lies about uh, Jews taking advantage of the population and all kinds of things. Slowly, slowly people uh, began to believe and become bystanders to all the things that afterwards was happening. Nobody objected. Nobody said anything. Uh, that's how these things can change. A small minority can uh, influence uh, the majority into believing something uh, that is not true. I mean, we had, we had at least with the election in, in, in America, you know, that uh, the whole propaganda of uh, Trump was that uh, he was cheated out of becoming, and people believe it, even though there was not a single proof to to say it. So it's it's very delicate the whole uh, structure, political structure, them to keep democracy in a country. Yeah, we have to be very very careful. Don't become bystander, but being active in a even in a small way to realize that we are being fed uh, propaganda that is not true and uh, keep to our principle of uh, uh, democracy. To find yourself liberated from Bergen-Belsen in in 1945 and then moving to Ireland in 1959, I'm curious to know. Your, your faith in humankind, in human nature. You've seen the ugly and the dark side of human nature. Do you have room for the idea that there's hope as well? Yeah, there always have to be for uh, hope because uh, otherwise we would, uh, we would be very frightening uh, existence, you know. Of course, when I was liberated in, in Belgian Belgium, I was only a child. You know, I get questioned what I was thinking and think. I wasn't thinking anything. You know, a child going through these things, you can't analyze. I only know the terrible thing happened to me. And, and I was always asking, why? What did I do? Did I hurt anybody? Did I do anything bad that I deserve uh, what happened to me? You didn't speak about your experiences for many years. What prompted you to finally break your silence? 
Yeah, that, 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 that's an interesting thing because it was only me. There were many thousands that were in the same situation. And it was basically after sort of uh, uh, also the others. It, it, it took 50 years for me and others to actually uh, come out suddenly there children, grandchildren didn't know anything uh, about it, and suddenly all this uh, was coming out. I remember uh, it was only about 10, 15 years ago, and it was accidental, maybe not accidental, but uh, where my uh, uh, grandson went to school, uh, he mentioned that his grandfather is a Holocaust survivor, and they asked him if I would uh, speak. It was in Zion School here. Uh, I went for the first time. I remember I didn't, didn't have experience in uh, talking uh, to public or people. Uh, so I ended up crying with all the children crying and uh, the teacher crying, you know. I am one of the last witnesses uh, to this uh, thing because anybody younger than me I was nine years old at the time, so I could uh, remember. But anybody younger, I don't know, five, four year old, they couldn't remember anything. Uh, and anybody older than me was passing away. Tommy, you often finish your lecture with a, a piece of poetry. I wonder, would you tell us about that and share it with us? Well, this, this, uh, poem written by Yehuda Bauer, who was a poet in 2001. And of course, this uh, typified very much uh, what happened and what the Holocaust was about. And uh, it goes as follows. The horror of the Holocaust is not that it deviated from the human norms. The horror is that it didn't. What happened? might happen again to others, not necessarily Jews, perpetrated by others, not necessarily German. We are all possible victims, possible perpetrators, and possible bystanders. Tommy Reichenthal, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank Thank you. Tommy Reichenthal. And we'll put a Facebook link to Tommy's address to the European Commission on our own website, so you can watch it live on Monday between 3 o'clock and 4. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. From our producer Sheila Callaghan, broadcast coordinator Jonathan Holland, and me, Michael Cullen, good night. <laughs>